And if you are, are with us, maybe you haven't been with us for a little while, we are in the middle of a series that we have titled Ecclesia. Ecclesia is the um, name of uh, that the Greek word that is regularly used throughout the New Testament to refer to the church. And we've talked in the past couple of weeks that it is a combination of two Greek words, which means uh, those that are called out. And we saw in the first week that we looked at this, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 says that the church are those that have been called out of spiritual darkness and into God's light. Amen? And we are working this direction after coming out of Pentecost and talking about the arrival of the Holy Spirit in power. And we've asked the question, what is it that the, church, or that the Holy Spirit has come to build and come to do? And that's the church. And that first week was kind of asking the question, well, what is the church? And as I said, Peter said, talks about the church as this living temple made up of living stones being built together by the Holy Spirit, this royal priesthood. The church of Jesus Christ isn't a place. It's not a program or an event or even a series of programs. Instead, the church in Scripture is ultimately a people, a people called out of the world, out of darkness, into spiritual life for the purposes of proclaiming the excellencies of God to the world. And so what is the church? Is it's that people? Well, what is true of these people? Who is the church is what we asked the second week. And we saw from Peter's declaration on Pentecost Sunday as he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ that he called those to, who had heard to repent and to believe and to be baptized. The church is all of those who've turned from sin and turned from self to pursue and follow after Jesus Christ. The universal church is all of those across all time and across every place around the world who have turned from themselves and trusted in Christ. But this universal body, though beautiful, is something that we can't actually interact with. It's beautiful for us to think about this universal church that will one day be assembled by the Lord as we see in Revelation to worship God from every tribe and nation and tongue, but that universal church often has very little impact on our lives. Instead, our experience of the church is in this form of local manifestations, congregations that we see are a church. This assembled bodies of believers that have these definable aspects of membership. And that's what we talked about last week, that membership matters because the church exists for a reason. Why is there local churches? Why is there a church? It's because Christ has given to the assembled bodies of believers both authority and responsibility. That it's the local congregation of church members that wield the keys of the kingdom, is what Jesus says in both Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And it's our responsibility as these, this kingdom of priests, this priesthood of believers, to minister to one another. That the ultimate earthly authority in the church is the assembled body of believers, not the pastor, not an elder board, not a church council or deacon body. But the ultimate earthly authority in the church is the assembled body of believers who come together for the purpose of being the church. And that assembled body of believers not only has that authority, they have that authority because they are given a responsibility. 
And we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 last week that Jesus Christ has united the church for his glory and for our good. That we are united in a common identity in Christ. We're united by a common need. There is no Christian who is the Walmart of Christians. That I have all the things that I need at any given point to survive. Instead, Christ has given by his own design and his own grace unique unique gifts to each and every individual Christian. And it's only when we all come together that your gifts and my gifts complement one another. And so I can't live my life alone. I'm united by a common need and a common purpose. That pastors are given for the purpose of equipping the saints for ministry. And ministry, as I said last week, is not these programs. Sunday morning worship service is not ministry. VBS is not ministry. Wednesday night Bible study is not ministry. Sunday school is not ministry. Those are places where ministry happens. Ministry is people-oriented, not program-oriented. And oftentimes, as church members, what we oftentimes confuse as church is we just string together all of these repeated programs, and as long as we pull off the repeated program after program after program, we call that church, and we've never actually stopped to minister to one another, to serve one another. We've kept the lights on, and we've played the music, and we've heard the word, and we've gone home, and we've never actually seen one another. But we need one another. We have this mutual authority and this mutual responsibility to minister to one another, to serve one another for the glory of the Lord. When we ended last week talking about the form and the function of the church, that the church in the universal sense oftentimes seems nebulous, like water spread out across a table. But when we give that water structure and form, and we pour that water into a hose— and we allow that water to constrict over a period of time with enough time and pressure and water coming behind it, as you give it structure, it becomes powerful. And so that prompts the question then for us today and this week and next week is what does that church structure look like? Because if all we've got is an assembled body of local believers, that's great. But if it's still unstructured, then there's no real difference between that nebulous universal church. It's just a bunch of people running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Take a couple of kids and put them in a room for very long without necessarily any structure. Either one, the thing's going to burn, the place is going to burn down because unsupervised children are foolish. But even at that young age, at that small level, as I've watched my boys grow up, if you put them in a room and you don't necessarily give them an instruction, inevitably someone is going to step up and make a suggestion, hey, why don't we play a game? Why don't we do something? You put a group of people together and a leader will inevitably emerge. The question isn't whether or not a leader will step up because a leaderless people is a lost people. The question isn't whether or not leaders will arise. The question is whether or not those leaders are qualified to lead, whether they are empowered to lead, and whether they lead well. And so as we talk about this church that is assembled and we ask the structure of the church, we have to ask the question of who then is the leader within the church. And Peter, as he wraps up his powerful letter to a persecuted church, a church that is suffering under unjust rulers, 
And he is writing to encourage multiple churches who are across the Roman Empire who are facing death under an evil Roman regime that hates the church. Peter concludes in chapter 4, he talks about how God's judgment begins with the church and immediately he rolls right into chapter 5 and he begins to address the church and how it is that they are to function under their leadership. Paul sa- or Peter says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have not left us without a direction. You've not left us without leadership. You've not left us without instruction. And how it is that we can best honor and glorify you and live as your children in this world. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for the grace and the mercy that you have granted to us. And I pray your grace and mercy be upon us now as we seek to honor you and your word that, Heavenly Father, our lives might be shaped by your word, that our gathering might be shaped by your word, that we, Heavenly Father, might be people who live in submission to you, to the authorities that you have sovereignly placed in our lives with a mutual accountability, a responsibility, and a humility, all for your name's sake and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God has called his people together for a purpose, but he has also given them a purpose. The congregation that he has called it together are people that we saw have responsibility and authority. And within that body of believers, people with a purpose, he has raised up individuals who have the responsibility of serving. In this passage of Scripture, Peter is going to address both the leaders, the congregants, and everyone together. And when we think about it and we try to process it, as I was processing this passage of Scripture, what I think jumps off of the page from this paragraph is this truth in Scripture that a proper submission and service is what gives the church the strength to face the struggles of the world. Proper submission and service by the people of God gives us this supernatural strength to face the struggles of the world. As I said, Peter is writing a circular letter to churches scattered throughout the known world who are suffering and they are struggling. And despite the amount of pressure that is being placed upon them from outside, Peter is calling them to walk as those who are different, who are unique, who are submitted and surrendered to Jesus Christ and to his lordship, no matter the consequences. You're going to suffer, he says, and that suffering is a unique suffering that brings you into a deeper fellowship with the Lord. 
And so Peter calls all of us to a practice of submission to the proper authorities. We read a passage of Scripture just a few minutes ago in our prayer time. As Peter is calling these Christians who are being persecuted by the government to submit to that government. That's a hard word. But Peter is actually talking about in that submission, which is oftentimes a dirty word in our world and in our culture, there is this supernatural strength that comes when we submit to the proper authority. Within the church, which is what Peter addresses in these verses, because in verse 17 to 14, he says, the judgment begins with the household of God. Peter addresses the household of God and the leadership structure that exists there. And there he commands both the shepherds, the teachers, the pastors, the people, and then everyone together in three ways. The first thing that Peter commands is that pastors are to lead well. The first command that we see in this passage of Scripture is actually there in verse 2 when Peter says to the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The shepherd there is the command. Peter bases that command and his authority to speak not only to the pastors, but to the congregation, not in his authority as an apostle, one of the twelve, but in his position as a fellow elder, a leader in the church. So the question becomes, who are these elders? And the elders, as we look throughout Scripture, it's a word that is used multiple places. There are several different words that are used in conjunction to, to, or to signify a similar office or the same office. It's elders, it's overseers, or you might see it as bishop in certain translations, and it's pastors. They seem to share the same responsibility. So who are these elders? And the answer is it's those that are qualified and set apart by the body of Christ for the purpose of leading the body of Christ. And some things that we can see and draw out of what Peter says to these churches or to these elders is important. First and foremost, these elders don't have a universal authority across multiple churches. He says here, shepherd the flock that is among you. So when we talk about last week that we see these manifestations of local bodies of believers popping up around, this is further evidence of it. That the church that is in Corinth, the elders that are there, don't have an authority over the church that exists in Laodicea. And vice versa. I as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an elder, I don't have authority if I go across town to Hilldale. I don't get to walk into First Baptist Church downtown and tell the people what to do. I'm not their pastor. Pastoral ministry is a local ministry. The other thing that we see that's common across Scripture is that there are always more than one. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a single pastor-led church. None. The weight and the responsibility of leading a people is heavy. And when you understand the spiritual weight that comes when the leadership is responsible for the eternal care or the care of someone's eternal soul or a collective body of eternal souls, when you understand the depths of the sin of the human heart, even the pastor's heart, it shouldn't be a place where there is ever any one individual who carries the authority. Everywhere that the term elder pops up in Scripture, it always refers to more than one. Why? Because there needs to be a mutual accountability among those individuals 
to hold one another accountable so that there's not an abuse of power, but also because this is a very heavy responsibility. And bearing one another's burdens starts and exists even in that leadership structure. And so there are always more than one pastor of a local congregation. Pastoral leadership and ministry is local. It is plural. And this authority is not tied to an individual's skills, even necessarily their knowledge. And even as important as a life of character is, no matter how well I live according to the principles of Scripture, no matter how obedient I am to Christ, that is never the source of my authority as a pastor. It can't be. Because I will never live up to the standards of Scripture. I will never be like Christ. Instead, pastoral authority comes from, first and foremost, the Word of God. As I am faithful to teach and preach the Word of God. And it's given by God, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and also the collective voice of the congregation. When the congregation comes together as those who have the authority to wield the keys and set someone apart for ministry. So that's who these elders are, but what are they to do? Peter's command is that they shepherd the flock of God. They are to lead. Shepherds have certain responsibilities over their sheep. Probably the most important is that they provide for their sheep. It's their responsibility to ensure that their sheep have what they need, that they are in the location where they may feed that they are led to fresh water that they may drink, that where and when they need to be sheared so that they might stay healthy and strong. The shepherd is responsible to provide that for them where and when they may be wounded. The shepherd's responsibility is to tend those wounds. In that sense, the the pastor's responsibility is to feed and care for the people of God. This is the equipping ministry of the pastors to ensure that you have everything you need not only to live lives that bring glory to the Lord and that walk in obedience to Him, but also that you might fulfill your unique ministry, which is to serve one another, to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be what God has called you to be, which is a maturing body of priests priest kings, to prepare you for the reality that not only do you have a ruling responsibility and authority here and now, but to prepare you for the day when Paul says you're supposed to rule over angels. Shepherds provide. Shepherds also protect. It's guarding the flock, both from threats from outside and threats from inside the church. Guarding the, helping the church, although we saw last week, as I mentioned to you, that the church ultimately bears a final responsibility for whatever is preached from this platform. I bear a unique individual responsibility, but if I start preaching heresy and you let it slip and slide, God will hold you accountable as well as me. We have a mutual responsibility to guard the flock from dangers within and dangers without. Shepherds also have the responsibility to lead, to guide the flock in the way that they should go. As a pastor, I have a responsibility, and and pastoral leaders have the responsibility to guide you and lead you into obedience and fellowship with one another and ultimately with the Lord. 
And when we bring this out of the agricultural realm and into the pastoral realm, the question becomes, how exactly do pastors do that providing, protecting, and guiding ministry? It's through teaching the Word of God. When you get into 1 Timothy and and Paul is talking about the qualifications for pastors, the truth of the matter is, as you start rocking down through those things, there is nothing morally in the sense that I am expect is expected of me as a pastor that you shouldn't expect for one another as believers in Jesus Christ. The thing that sets the pastoral role apart from even the deacon role is really one thing, the ability to teach. To be able to examine the Scripture, expose its meaning, and apply it to your lives. To equip you with the knowledge and the wisdom that you need, that you might then minister, that you might then live, that you might then know where and if there is danger in the world and what you're listening to and who is creeping into the church, and to also guide you in the way that you should go. The pastoral ministry is fundamentally a teaching ministry. Because it's God's word that provides our needs and protects our hearts and our minds. And it's God's word that is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. The pastoral ministry is fundamentally about standing here and not giving you some self-help talk with the latest news out of Reuters or anything else or psychology today. It's to expose the meaning of God's word and apply it to your life. The primary ministry of the elder is the teaching ministry. They are to lead from and lead you to the Word of God. How do they do this? Peter qualifies their leadership, exercising oversight. They're to do it first and foremost willingly. Look what he says there. He says, you are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then he goes on, not under compulsion, but willingly. Have you ever tried to make a child sit down and eat when all the rest of the kids are on the playground and playing? Good luck, right? When all the rest of the kids are up and about and and running around trying to make a child do something that that child doesn't necessarily want to do ends up being a miserable experience. Paul doesn't want, or not Paul, Peter and God himself, as he is talking about these biblically qualified leaders, the biblically qualified leader is one who serves willingly, not because I have to. That's always a scary and a dangerous place to be, to have somebody who's leading you who doesn't really want to do it. Instead, those who lead God's people should desire to lead God's people. And that's just as a point of application, that's a dangerous part when we end up in our Baptist circles where we have one senior pastor and everybody else is just kind of serving around and then that pastor's gone and you got to find a new pastor. Guess what? Somebody's leading at that particular point. Somebody's helping you make decisions. Somebody's guiding that process. Somebody's shepherding. The question is, are they shepherding because they have to? And the ones that are doing it, are they really qualified to? Shepherds lead willingly. The problem that we have oftentimes, and I hear this with young folks all the time, and it was used even in my language, God's called me to pastoral ministry. Good for you, Jack. You know, the Bible never 
uses that language in reference to pastoral ministry. There is no calling into pastoral ministry in the Bible. There is a calling on every single life to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe. When somebody shows up to me and say, I'm called into pastoral ministry, that's okay. We're going to have that qualification. But to basically, it's oftentimes used by a young guy who's arrogant and proud and wants to be in charge to say, there's my divine trump card. Call me on it. God's called me into ministry. No. There's a desire that may be inside of you, and Paul actually says in 1 Timothy that that is a good thing. Paul says it's a good thing for someone to desire the office of pastor. There should be a desire inside of you, a want to serve. But that want to serve is shaped and still under the authority of the people of God who then come alongside you and not only understand, do you have the competency to lead? Do you have the character to do so as well? And let me just tell you, as one who's been through it, just because somebody has a degree from seminary doesn't mean that they have the character to be a pastor. I've been there. I've done that. Seminary is a great place, and it is needed, but it is not equipped to oversee and then recommend the character of a man, only his competency. Nevertheless, there are those who are willing to serve, who want to serve, but often for the wrong reasons. And Peter encourages us to guard against that, that pastors should not serve for their own personal gain, but they should serve eagerly as out of this desire, not just eagerly in the sense of willing, but eagerly in the right way, that they're not there to build up their own fame or their own fortune, to build their own kingdom, but they are there for the glory and the, of the Lord and the good of the people. And then flowing right into that, there's this extra step where pastors are to leave not as those dominating others in their charge, but as examples. There is constantly a threat to every person in any position of leadership to abuse that leadership. And we as Southern Baptists have, see, have evidence ample right in front of us over the reports that have come out over the last couple of months at our request of pastors, shepherds who have fed on the flock instead of protected them, who have used the vulnerable and abused them for their own sake and their own gain and their own pleasure. There's a tendency in every single one of us to misuse the authority that God has placed uh, or given to us and granted to us. And pastors have to be especially careful that we not use this position to browbeat anyone into doing our will, but instead lead and guide and counsel others to do the will of God. The power of the pastor is not to compel, it's to counsel. My relationship with you is not as a father to a five or six-year-old son that I have the ability to discipline and correct their behavior but more a father of a 27-year-old son where the only thing that I have the ability to do is give you wise counsel and trust in that counsel to affect your heart and allow you then to make the right decision. And pastors do this by living as examples. And as pastors follow Christ and the congregation follows pastors, just as Paul urged his congregations to follow after him as he followed after Christ, we then begin to move in the, re the right direction. Why are they to do this? They're to serve, they're to lead, 
Leading well means leading willingly, eagerly, and with integrity. And the reason that they are to do this, Paul, Peter says right here in verse 4, is because they are those who are under authority. There is a chief shepherd who is over every under-shepherd. Every elder, every pastor in every church is ultimately accountable to Jesus Christ, and he will appear one day, and that will be a source of joy for some and a source of terror for others. And pastors must serve with our eyes and our hearts fixed on Jesus Christ, knowing that in the end, I'm accountable to him for the way that I led. And my prayer and my hope is that on that day of his appearing, I will receive this unfading crown of glory that Peter talks about in this passage of Scripture. That as I lead and as I lead well, that I will bring him glory and honor. So as a church and as a congregation, this is the standard to which I'm held by God. And you have a right and you have a responsibility to hold me accountable to that. To serve alongside me, to speak truth. Where and when I go wayward, we'll see that in just a second. Where and when I trip and fall because I'm a person too, struggling in my own sin. And I'll not always get it right. And there are days that I'll get up here and I'll wield the word of God like a, like a paddle instead of as a light and a lamp. And I ask you forgive me in that moment, but then also to speak and to encourage and help me then that I might lead better and lead well. And as a church, we need to be constantly encouraging those who have a desire to serve in this capacity. Not just in vocational ministry. These elders, though they were compensated in Scripture, there were many of them that they had a normal, everyday, nine-to-five job, and that was where they dwelled, but they had the spiritual maturity to also be a leader and an elder within the church. And guess what those guys did? Guess what those kinds of men do for a church? When the vocational guy picks up and packs up and leaves, you're not left in a situation where you don't have qualified spiritual leaders who are guiding the church through that difficult period of time. There's a place for it. And in our Constitution, when we redid it, we talked about in our, church, in, our, in our Constitution, we talk about pastors who are the spiritual leaders over a congregation. And there's language in the midst of our Constitution that talks about staff pastors and lay pastors. Men qualified with a desire to lead who are set apart by this church for that specific purpose. And I pray for the day that I'm surrounded by men who aren't paid to be next to me, but desire to be next to me and to lead you well, because God has placed that calling on their lives for this place and this congregation. Briefly, though, moving beyond, because we're talking about mainly pastoral ministry, there's also a responsibility for the members as well. It's the responsibility of the pastors to lead well, and it's the responsibility of the members to follow well. Peter says here, in verse 5, you who are younger, be subject. It's the second command in this passage of Scripture. Be subject to the elders. The question is, who are these youngers that he's talking about? It may be very possible that he's just simply talking about the youth. Because everybody knows it's the young bucks that want to buck the system and they want to be hard-headed and they oftentimes want to go their own way because they're still mature, but they're at the place where they may have a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of strength. And we know what Paul says, right? A little bit of knowledge puffs up. And so this may be a command specifically directed at those young believers in the sense of late teenage, early young adulthood. 
But when we ask the question, well, does that mean that the mature believers are somehow exempt from this expectation that they be subject to the authorities, to the pastors? No. So in this sense, everyone in the church is expected to submit to God's proper authority within the church, which is the leadership of the pastors. Everyone is expected to be in submission. We are to submit to follow the proper and appointed leaders that the Lord has raised up over each and every one of us. Everyone in every area of our life is called to submission at some level, whether it be pastor to Jesus Christ, church member as, as a submission to the church, me as a pastor to the church, all of us to Jesus, to one another, to the authorities that God has placed in our life about in the world and even in our home. Submission is a beautifully biblical word and we have allowed the culture to destroy it. Submit is not the same word as obey, folks. Submission grants the individual who's being requested to submit a certain autonomy, will, strength, responsibility, purpose, and power that they then get and are called to willingly set aside to come underneath the leadership of someone else. Jesus Christ himself submitted himself to the authority of the Father. Pastors are called to submit themselves to the ultimate authority of the congregated body, but then also to Jesus Christ. And you as members are called in a mutual submission to the spiritual leadership of the church, to the elders. We all are called and privileged with the opportunity to surrender and to submit. The church that is gathered, we see, have seen, has an authority, and that authority matters. The problem that we have when we talk about submission and we talk about authority in the church is we think of authority as this single thing. And somebody either has it or they don't. And if they have it, nobody else can have it. But when we come to the church of Jesus Christ, we realize, according to Scripture, the congregation has a certain authority and the spiritual elders and leaders, pastors, have a certain kind of authority. And those two authorities are not competing with one another, but they actually come under one another, strengthen one another. Pastoral authority and congregational authority are mutually beneficial and necessary. The congregation is the final earthly authority and has the authority to wield the keys of the kingdom. And God has raised up spiritual leaders to dedicate their hearts and their lives to the study of God's word, that that extremely powerful body of believers doesn't misuse that power. But to speak with wisdom and with clarity and with guidance, because after all, what does Uncle Ben tell Spider-Man? With great power comes great responsibility. You gathered this place as a church have the authority to wield the keys of the kingdom. Stop and let that sink in. To declare the what of the gospel and who is among the gospel. And so God has given you gifts in pastors, teachers, elders to devote our hearts and our lives to study God's word that we might equip you to wield those keys well. And Scripture says that where and when we are pursuing God and guiding according to His Word, 
though there may be disagreement, as I lead according to God's word, your responsibility is to yield to that leadership. But part of following well means that you're not just following blindly. Following well means that you are growing and maturing and growing into your unique ministry within the church to serve one another, to minister to one another, to serve those that are around us as well. There's a point in my children's lives right now as we're driving through town and they know where we're going and they know that Sarah usually goes a specific way to get to that destination and I take a wrong turn because I have a different preferred way that I like to go, inevitably one of those children pipe up in the background, why are we going this way, Dad? You're going the wrong way, Dad. The truth of the matter is, we have a destination. And you may have a preferred way to get there, and I may have a preferred way to get there. Neither one of them is necessarily wrong. But where and when pastors are leading according to God's word, we go that way. We go the pastor's way. But where and when the pastor's off track, you have a responsibility to speak up. Because I remember there was another time when I was in high school and I was with some friends and we were traveling down to Opry Mills for an event that was going on down there. And a friend of mine and her mom picked me up and we were going to go and meet some other friends. And we're just around the corner from my house and we got to driving and I'm sitting in the back seat and she gets to this to this three-way stop, and I know she's supposed to go right, but she goes straight. And I kind of sit back and I think, that's weird. But hey, she's in charge. She, maybe she knows where we're supposed to go. And so I sat silent until we cruised on down the road, and we ended up five minutes out of our way, and we get over to this overpass of the interstate, and she goes, I don't know where I am. I said, well, where are you going? She said, I'm trying to get to Susan's house. Well, you should have taken a right back there. Well, why didn't you say anything? Because I'm the kid and you're the adult and I've been told my entire life to keep my mouth shut. When it's a matter of we're going to the right place, but there's a disagreement on the best way to get there, there's a responsibility of the church to follow the lead of the pastor when he's leading according to Scripture. But where and when the pastor takes a wrong turn, it's your responsibility to speak up and say, Pastor, we're off course. We're going the wrong way. That's following well following responsibly. And in the end, not only is it the pastor's responsibility to lead well and the congregation's responsibility to follow well, it's everybody's responsibility to love well. To not do anything out of pride or arrogance or building up my name or my reputation or my wants. It's we are commanded in Scripture to prefer one another. Not to come into this place and demand my preference, that you move my direction. Instead, there is this mutual submission. It is this mutual place as pastors live submitted to the chief shepherd, as church members live submitted to Jesus Christ and the proper under-shepherds that he has raised up and called and equipped and placed inside the church, that we all come together living for his glory and not our own. And so we are to be those who clothe ourselves in humility, Peter's third command is clothe yourself in humility. Humility is not supposed to be a pin that you hang on your lapel. It's not supposed to be a belt or your shoes. It is an outer outer garment that covers everything else. Because the warning is that God opposes the proud. The one who shows up that says it's my way or the highway 
is the one that God will stand against. But when we come clothing ourselves in humility, we come clothing ourselves in Christ. Because after all, isn't it Jesus who said, I am gentle and lowly of heart? It's Christ who humbled himself. Humility and humbling ourselves is not weakness. It is the most divine strength. And when we come together as those who humble ourselves in a mutual submission and surrender and love to doing things God's way, not my way, not the world's way, not whatever is practical necessarily, it's drawn in from the business world because that's pragmatic and functional, but to choose to do the difficult things, to submit and to surrender, that grants us a spiritual strength to defy the powers of the world that would seek to oppress us. When we live according to God's word, under God's design, for God's glory, for one another's good, that is a testimony to a watching world that doesn't make sense And that draws others to come to know this one that we allow to shape every area of our life, even our corporate body of believers. So my question to you today is, how can you clothe yourself in humility? How do you need to come to Christ and surrender your wants, your preferences, your desires in order to serve him? How can you follow well 